The reading this morning is from Psalm 103. Um, It's verses 1 to 5 and then 20 to 22. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Morning, everyone. Good to be here. Welcome if you're here for the first time or one of the first times. It's great to have you with us. Am I in the right place, Stefan? Is this good? That way? Are you talking about my politics or my position here? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just checking. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. (laughs) Right. I've moved to the right. There we go. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Right. Well, here we are. Uh, We're talking about worship, continuing our Blueprint uh, series. And... um, and this is all about our key values, as you will have heard last week uh, if you were here, and uh, what we've been called to as a church. And the starting presupposition of these sermons is that if we go back to the maker's instructions, the blueprint, that's where it comes from. We can see our experience of those values and that calling transformed. As we renew our vision and as we overcome the apathy the fears, or whatever other struggles that we might have with those things. So that's certainly what I hope to achieve today. And um, I want to start, though, with a a story, my favorite story about worship, at least in the the musical sense. And uh, apologies to anyone who's heard this before, but I don't think I've told this here. But uh, the church I grew up in, and uh, they... You know, they, they had a similar style to here, modern style of worship. Obviously, that was the 1980s, so it was a bit different. Uh, but but uh, same kind of principle. And there was a time of extended worship, as we call it, a bit like we've just had uh, just now. And um, and on this occasion, you know, which you know we'd all be delighted about, uh, the congregation was clearly really moved by it. And um, and so the person who who came up after uh, the set of worship, uh, which had culminated in the song that some of you will remember as the deer pants for the water right based on a famous psalm Lo- lovely song you know in its time um, particularly <laughs> and uh, and this, this particular lady who w- would normally um not she her, her role was to give a a, a a prayer of thanks for the collection that had just been given and uh, this would normally be a set prayer but she was so moved by uh, the time of worship and that song in particular that she broke uh, from her usual uh, routine 
uh, with an extempore prayer that began like this. So, Lord, as the deer pants for the water, so give us bigger pants. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let us applaud uh, for responding to the movement of the Spirit in a time of worship Um, And let us not be deterred by the comic consequences of that particular incident. Because, of course, being moved and changed by worship is what we all want. And I hope that we, in some way, are moved and changed by what I want to share today, which is close to my heart, is absolutely central to who we want to be as a church. And I hope it reflects your aspirations too. So let's just pray that God would do his work in us. Father God, please help us to be worshippers. Please help us to connect with you, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. Please help us to live out those wonderful answers that we gave at the beginning of the service adults and children. Give us a new vision for worship today in our services and throughout our lives. Amen. Okay, on with the sermon. And there are two definitions of worship that I want to work with this morning. One is the Sunday service one. Uh, which is probably the one that many, particularly younger Christians, would think of uh, when we hear the word. And the second is the broader definition, worship in all that we do uh, with uh, all of our lives. And both of those things were reflected in the answers we gave, weren't they, at the beginning. So first, Sundays, and, um, and a scenario which I think that many of us will recognize at times in our own experience. And that's when we come to church but the service largely passes us by. The worship time, in terms of the singing, washes over us. Our lips move, but although some sound may possibly emerge, our hearts and even our heads are not engaged. There's no real connection with God in the experience, and we're just going through the motions. Now, of course, I should say at this point, and this is a very important point, uh, we're all wired differently. Song worship is not something that floats everyone's boat, especially uh, for some men or less musical or expressive types. And to be honest, I'm a bit like that by nature. It was never the most important bit of a service for me. However, I do want to be a good worshipper. I do want a worshipping heart, and I'm sure we do too. So I pray that we can recapture or gain that today. Then there's the broader definition of worship. For the Bible tells us, as many of us will know, that it's not just what we do in church, but it's about our lives during the week. And the scenario here that I want to tackle is that even if Sunday worship is working for us, there's no attempt at worship in the rest of the week. It just isn't happening. So that our lives from Monday to Saturday feel less God-connected, less joyful, and less alive than we know they're meant to be. Is that what your life is like right now? 
where there is hope, God can help us. And whole life worship could become a real thing for us. And I'm sure we can all identify with something in those scenarios. And I hope we can address that now. And I want to do it by starting with two really, really important guiding principles that have really helped me in my own struggles in this area. And so I'm confident can help you. And which capture the balance that I think we all need. And the first is not from scripture directly, but from a very famous statement called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it was actually written when the church leaders of England, Scotland and Ireland got together in 1647. I'm really cutting edge, me. And, uh, and yet it's a very famous event. And they got together to agree what to teach their congregations about the Christian life. And it took a form of a set of questions and answers. And it started like this, and you'll see it on the screen now. The question, what is the chief end of man? And this was the answer that they came up with. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Do you like it? I certainly do, absolutely. And yet the tragedy is, and I was just talking to a, a couple that I'm, I'm preaching at their wedding next week and um, asking about the people that are coming to the wedding. And uh, the bride was saying, you know, to be honest, quite a lot of my friends think that God is someone who wouldn't welcome us. God is someone that to be scared of in a really negative way. God is someone to avoid. And yet here, Reflecting what the Bible teaches, we're told to enjoy him forever. How important it is to get that message out. Now, this has always, always seemed a really good summary of the purpose of worship, and indeed, of course, the whole of life. To bring glory to God and to enjoy being with him now and for eternity. In fact, the Bible tells us it's the reason God made us in the first place. So if our worship is doing that, well... We're in a pretty good place. Now, here's the second principle, this time taken directly from Scripture, from Romans 12, verse 1. And you'll see it on the screen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I'm sure many of us are familiar with that. So why have I chosen these two principles? Because of what they bring together, without which our worship falls short. So the first thing they bring together is pleasure and joy. For worship flows from the very essence of what it means to be human. We're made to worship God. There is a God-shaped hole in our lives. Worship makes us feel good. Now, if you want an example of how there is a, a worship hole in our life, I'll give you that from uh, the other place that I go, uh, where large numbers of people gather and sing, uh, which is West Ham, as many of you know. And um, there, there is a strange thing at West Ham, which I've always found a little bit odd as someone who, you know, is a, a practicing Christian, uh, which is there is a religious element to this. And um, particularly in the big matches, you know, they start singing the various anthems of, of West Ham. And, um, and to be honest, there are a lot more supporters with their arms in the air 
singing at the top of their voices at the football ground than there are in many churches. Uh, they'll wave their scarves, they'll, and they'll, they'll almost be, you know, adopting Chris's posture, you know, prostrate before their God that will soon be emerging through the tunnel onto the pitch. Now, I always find this really uncomfortable because obviously I'm thinking, well, we don't worship footballers, especially not those ones who always lose in the big matches. But, <laughs> but, but it tells you that these EastEnders, these Essex men, or what most West Ham fans are, who are not the typical people you would expect to be religious types, are wanting to worship. They want something to identify with. They want something bigger than themselves that gives meaning and purpose to their lives. And yet the truth is, not just that they should support a better football team, (laughs) West Ham are much improved, that's not the issue. Is that they're filling that God-shaped hole with something else. Nothing wrong with going to football. But there is wrong, something wrong with looking to football to fill everything that you need deep down in your soul and your heart. And pleasure and joy is something that worship is all about. To make us feel good and to fill that hole and to be ourselves the way, the way we were made, even if it's something we need to get used to, if it's not something we've done before. So that's the first element, that pleasure and joy. The second is this, the need for holiness, reverence, and putting God first, without which worship is unfitting for the one that we're worshipping, who is a holy, almighty, and awe-inspiring God. And this is clearly something meant to apply in every area of our lives. And yet, if we're completely honest, most of us fall short on both those things. Which is to say, on the one hand, we allow God to become distant from us. We've lost that intimacy with him and we've forgotten what incredible privilege and joy it is to walk with him every minute of every day. The fact that we can talk to him, which blows people's minds when they don't realize this, that we can allow him to lead and encourage us. We can seek his guidance and empowering in all that we do. We are never alone. We always have someone with us, helping us, strengthening us, inspiring us, giving us the boldness and courage to fulfill the potential we've been given. And we forget this, don't we? And instead we operate as if God is up there, which is the traditional language, but it's not very helpful, and we are down here. And because we think he's up there separate from us and we're down here, we don't want to bother him. We're English. We're polite. You know, we don't don't want to be a nuisance. Yet the reality is, if we're Christians, he's actually here among us, inside of us, through his Holy Spirit, for the very purpose of being intimately involved in our lives and longing to do exactly that. And to not allow him to do so is like getting married and then living effectively separate lives, which I'm sure you agree is a tragedy, is a falling short of the very purpose of marriage. Worship, like marriage, is about love and friendship and simply enjoying being together and not only communicating when there's a problem to be solved. 
So do pray that God would help you reset your relationship if you need to, so that you can rediscover or discover for the first time that connection and that intimacy with your creator God. So that's one hand. On the other hand, there's the problem that God can be too familiar, which means we've stopped giving him the reverence he deserves, and particularly the more modern, um, contemporary forms of church can be a bit like this. And we almost forget his holiness and his divinity. And we effectively think of God like one of us, as a God in our own image, with our own lower standards than his who can't therefore challenge or inspire us and who has little impact on how we think or live. This is a convenient God, a comfortable God that we've made him, but very far from who our creator God actually is. Have we stopped worshipping because our God is too small and actually just an extension of ourselves? Now, let's be honest, this is the God of our 21st century Western society. The God that people beyond the church want to believe in, who's neither a challenge nor a threat. And yet the sad thing is, by reducing God to that, they feel no need of him. And they miss out on that joy and that peace and that purpose that they were made to have. Now take those two traps, if you like, together. And what do we need to avoid them? Well, we need this. More desire and passion for God, yet also more fear and awe. To be more intimate, but less comfortable. To seek to be more in love, but less in control. The living sacrifice that Paul called us to be in that verse. Will you ask God to give you that balance today? So those are the two things I most wanted to emphasize this morning. But for the rest of the time, I want to draw on that main passage that we heard read, Psalm 103, for pointers about how to put it into practice. And I chose it because for me, it offers both the motivational keys that we need, and I certainly do, yet also with the intentionality that we also need to actually make it happen. So first, the motivation, and all of these come from the passage, starting with verse 2. As David, who wrote it, tells us to forget not all his benefits, which are the reasons that we have to be grateful and to praise God, including his forgiveness of our sins, the basis of our relationship with him through Jesus dying in our place. His healing of our diseases, which is a literal thing for for some. Many in this church will have been healed at one point or another. But it's certainly a metaphorical thing for us all. As we all experience all that is unhealthy in our lives being transformed and renewed. God heals us physically when we need it, but also spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and even as a community too. Third, another reason for worship is his redeeming of our life from the pit. Interesting words, aren't they? There must be an allusion to the story of Joseph being left in the pit by his brothers. But it's a metaphor there for us all. 
who were without hope, trapped by our sin, but rescued by God's grace, just as Joseph was rescued. That was the reality all of us faced as fallen human beings in a fallen world. And yet the great news is that when we remember that, which we don't like to remember instinctively, well, then we feel again the relief and the joy of all that God has done for us. That he has rescued us through Jesus. And he has, as the passage tells us, crowned us with love and compassion. I don't think, know if you think of yourself as a, a member of the royal family. But we are a member of God's royal family. He has crowned us all. And he's done it by saying, you are my precious child, dearly loved by me. Whether other people <coughs> sorry, love you or you feel loved by others, I love you. And I love you more than you can possibly imagine. I'm just going to grab some water. Hang on. There we go. An incredibly, incredibly powerful thing. And I think in today's culture and the place that we're at as a society and a culture, this is the thing people most need to know. That God loves us completely and utterly. And it's only when we grasp that that we can be set free from that low self-esteem that we struggle with. That lack of confidence that hating of ourselves that we can slip into, that despair about life and the future, that insecurity that we can take into our key relationships, that anger that we can so allow to spoil those relationships. To know that God loves us can turn that all around. It's the single most powerful thing that we need to know. And to all of that, in response to all of that, worship really is the only suitable response. And it's the reason God made us for his good pleasure to give him the praise and devotion he deserves. Now that would be very arrogant from a human being. But from the maker of heaven and earth, it's exactly what we should expect. Because it's who God is. And it's what he deserves. So those are the motivations. Now, I want to pick out the intentionality that can turn it into action. Because we're all into, or we so easily slip into good intentions, don't we? Good uh, aspirations. But we don't deliver it, which frustrates ourselves and God. And David helps us in what he says. What he says at the beginning of our passage and what he says at the end. And so at the beginning, he says this. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. And this reflects the fact that to actually kickstart an attitude and habit of worship in our lives, we simply need to make ourselves do it. Now, when I was feeling a bit homesick, um, early in my first year at university, we used to call it fifth week blues. It was a bit of a thing that um, everyone recognized when you leave home for the first time. And I was struggling a bit. My dad sent me a little book called Power in Praise. It was really thin. Some of you might remember it. I think it was a 60s book. And um, it's really a book that only had one point. But it was a point that helped me no end. And it was saying that when we choose to praise God, 
intentionally, even when we don't feel like it, and at that time, those times during the week when it's hardest, it changes us. It unlocks something in us that is natural and joy-giving, but which lies dormant through underuse. A bit like making yourself go back to the gym. We really don't want to do it those first one or two times. But once we've done it, the desire, the motivation, and also the energy and confidence returns. Although if you're Jacob, you don't have that problem because you can just come to church and get Ben to make you run around for 15 minutes. But he's a young man. He'll he'll cope. But it's not just that David is instructing himself to praise, important though that is. It's that he's drawing it from deep inside himself, instructing his soul and his inmost being, all that he is, his head, his heart, and his spirit. And that's what God wants from us. For worship only becomes true worship when all three are involved. And we really mean it. Will, emotions, and all. And take music just as an example. It's not worship when we just sing the words of the song. It's worship when we engage at this deeper level. So it goes from being someone else's words to actually our very own. Offered to God as our own heart response and prayer. Which doesn't happen automatically. It's a choice that only we can make. And it also comes through preparation. So we're focused and ready as we arrive. So often the biggest determinant of whether we're truly worshipping in a church service is not the words of the liturgy or the music, the tune, whether it's a style of song that we'd like. It's actually the mentality with which we come. A short time of prayer before you leave for church makes all the difference. I've tried it myself. It really, really does. If you prepare yourself before you come, you will engage in a much deeper way, much earlier on. God deserves our best. Will you give it to him? But I want to finish now with the broader level of worship, as I hinted earlier, which takes us beyond the service that we come to, to the rest of our lives. Reflected in that final section of our psalm, as David addresses the angels. But of course, his words, where he says, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word, and you his servants who do his will, actually apply equally to us, as Romans 12 verse 1 made clear. For we have that same calling to obey our heavenly father and to fulfill all his purposes to do the will of the Lord. And that's what being a living sacrifice is all about. Putting God first and making him, not ourselves, the Lord of our lives. That was how Jesus wanted to be addressed. That's how God, our heavenly father, wanted to be addressed, our Lord. And it means this, that we choose to put him first. We recognize that he is God and we are not. And that we choose to glorify him, not just in actions, but in words, in putting into practice what he calls us to do. And it's not just us that glorify him when we do that, because we live for God on a public stage, don't we? Not because we're all up here in the front of church, but because 
people living among us. They work among us. They live in our family. They see us in different situations. And actually, Jesus said something very, very thought-provoking and powerful about this. He said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And I know people who, in the end, after many years of not being anywhere near it, have become Christians because they were so struck by the character of God that over time they saw in the person that they knew and loved or lived and worked among. People will respond when they see God in us. And that happens when we obey him and live with the character and the obedience that he calls us to, the way that Jesus himself lived. Using the gifts we've been given to the best of our ability to glorify God. And that doesn't mean that we have to tell people that we're doing it for that reason. But actually, whenever we use the gifts that we've been given, well, people, as they get to know us, will recognize that is a form of worship itself. We are saying that I have been made by you with this ability to respond to you and with the ability to bring glory to you by becoming the full potential that you made us to have. If you've seen Chariots of Fire, you know how that was lived out in that story. And whenever any one of us seeks to do our best in all that we do, in our work, in our family, and in every other context, well, we are bringing glory to God. If in all that we do, we do it for him. I need to conclude, so let me do it like this, in this one sentence or two. What then is the purpose of worship in services? Well, in the light of all that we've heard, surely it is this. To offer to God in that moment the devotion, the sacrifice, and the commitment that we choose to take into every aspect of our lives. To lay down a marker for the rest of the week. One is simply an expression of the other. That's what authenticity. That's what wholehearted discipleship is all about. I commend it to you. Amen. Well, we're going to respond to that now in two ways. Uh, today is a prayers for healing service, as I think we said at the beginning. And uh, we're going to have a time of musical worship to put in.